You can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We stand because we honor God's Word. The pages of Scripture are breathed out by God. We want to honor Him. Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, you are holy. You cannot dwell with sin, and you cannot dwell with evildoers, of which all of us are. Lord, we, the world is filled not with good people, but evil people, Lord, that you would devastate with the coming of your presence. And yet we thank you that you have, you've, you have provided a way through Christ for people to know you and for your kingdom that you planned and the kingdom program that you have purposed from the beginning, from creation And even before that, Lord, we thank you that it's coming. Thank you, Father, it will come. That Jesus, one day you will sit upon a throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the entire world, all nations. Lord, we pray for repentance. We pray for repentance on our our part and for the part of people in our community, in our nation, um, the, the world, oh Lord God, that is what we pray for. Lord, we ask for this morning as we come to your word that you would teach us. Spirit, we ask for your strength. I ask for strength for, to preach well and to be clear, but also for all of us to understand and to change where we need to change, oh Lord God. We thank you for your word. Bless this time now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever heard people talk about wanting God to show up 
in person. Maybe you've heard people say, well, if God's real, uh, why didn't he show himself, right? Why didn't he come down and display, display himself? Show me that he's real. Or maybe, uh, maybe uh, you know, you hear people talk about, well, if God's real, I have a few things to say to him. I, I wish he would come and I could, you know, I could argue with him. That is the most foolish talk that you could hear of. Because like we said, or like I just indicated, even in prayer, God showing up would be the most devastating thing that could ever possibly happen. You see, it's true. Psalm 5, 4 through 6 says that God cannot dwell with evil or with evildoers. He hates sin and he hates evildoers what Psalm 5, 4 through 6. So if God was to show up in all of his glory, in all of his fullness, in his presence, it would mean instant death. It would mean instant judgment. It would mean devastation. There are Psalms that, uh, Psalm 46, that Psalm that says, be still and know that I am the Lord. You know, that one that you put on nice posters uh, in, in the dentist office or whatever, uh, um, in your home. You know the context of that, don't you? That's be still before the Lord, all the earth, because he has destroyed all human armies. And the world is silent because he has shown himself in majesty and judgment. It's not a be still and have an inner peace. It is be still because of God is awesome. When he comes, he will judge and destroy evildoers. He will judge sin. And... This even connects with this idea of God showing up, connects with where Matthew is going, because we've seen from the beginning, we're in this section, it really kind of covers chapters one through seven, where Matthew is presenting the king. He's presenting the king. He's given the genealogy at the beginning. He's spoken of how Jesus came to be produced by a specific creative act of the Holy Spirit in the, the womb of the Virgin Mary. And Matthew has already hinted at that this one, Jesus, is God the Son incarnate. You shall call his name Jesus, Yahweh is salvation, because he, that's Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Yahweh is going to save, Yahweh is salvation, and yet Jesus is going to save, which means Jesus must be Yahweh. He must be God. And so in a sense, Matthew is presenting God has shown up. And even last week, we talked about how uh, this idea of even Jesus' movements, his geographic movements, sovereignly ordained by God in uh, going to Egypt and coming out of Egypt and uh, coming back to Nazareth, it's all sovereignly ordained by God. These movements are planned and purposed for the purpose of showing that Jesus has come into exile. Uh, Matthew, uh, even from his genealogy, has, has presented, uh, Israel, you're still in exile. What happened at the deportation to Babylon is still has continuing effects down to Jesus' day. And so the need is to be rescued out of exile, the, that rescue that the prophets of old spoke about, that second exodus that the prophets spoke about. We addressed that last week, how it's portrayed that Jesus is the one to rescue from exile. And yet, 
when God comes to save, he also comes to judge, which is one of the things you see in Scripture, and it's one of the tensions that we see, and it leads us into what we're going to look at this morning. God comes to save, he also comes to judge. God showing up is a devastating thing. It sounds wonderful. Oh, God's going to come and rescue. It's going to be great. But if God is holy, how in the world can he rescue a sinful people? You remember Peter, even uh, in that miracle where uh, later uh, that Jesus uh, makes all these great, uh, this huge catch of fish that Peter drags into the boat. And remember how Peter responds like, that's great. I've got a bunch of fish now, right? I can, I can sell them, make a huge profit. But remember Peter's response, depart from me, get away. Because God has showed up and God knows my inmost thoughts. God knows me to the core. God knows the utter depths of my sinfulness. Get away. Get away. So how do we deal with that tension? We need God to show up to deliver us from exile, but how do we know that if God shows up, it will be devastating? God showing up in the Old Testament, it's often spoken of as darkness, devastation, a storm, danger, all of this. So how do we deal with this tension? And then think about if, if the God who knows your innermost being and self, your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes, if he was to show up and someone's to say, someone, one of his messengers was to say, God is going to show up today. He's going to show up soon. Think about how you would actually respond. We often think, well, that would be great. If God's going to show up, I'm going to go see him. No, 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 no. Because if you understand your sinfulness, you would say, you would say with those who speak this way in Revelation, let me find the nearest mountain and hide under it because God is coming and I am a sinner. So how do we deal with this tension that we need God to come and rescue from exile, but we also know that there is great sinfulness in my own heart. Well, that's what our passage is really doing today. Matthew is dovetailing with what he just talked about last week with the the need of rescue for exile and that rescue coming through Jesus, that second David, that that one who's going to lead his people in that second exodus. And we meet his herald. You know what a herald is, the one who prepares the way for the king. The king is coming and John is the one, John the Baptist is the one who prepares the way of the king. And so since the king is coming, what is the proper response? Well, this is the point of this passage. It's what Matthew is giving to his Jewish audience, and he's giving it to us this morning. And here's the big idea. Repent and entrust yourself to the imminent king in order to bear fruit and escape his wrath. Repent and entrust yourself to the imminent king. The king's at the door. God is at the door. Repent and entrust yourself to the imminent king in order to bear fruit and escape his wrath. So let's look at the first portion of this passage this morning. There's two parts. There's a typo in the bulletin. It's not Julie's fault. It's my fault. Um, uh, The first section we're going to look at goes through verses 1 through 6, and the second section goes through 7 through 12. And what we need to see first in this first section of verses verses 1 through 6 is this. You need to repent because the kingdom has drawn near. You need to repent because the kingdom has drawn near. Let's look at the text, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, 
John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, in those days, uh, it ties us back to the previous chapter. Now, there's been a substantial gap of time that's come, right? The, uh, about 25 years or more have passed since Jesus was an infant and they settled in Nazareth. But, but John is linking this section back to what we just saw. Why? Because he's going to connect with what we saw last week about that escape from exile, that second exodus. So in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. Literally, the idea is acting as a herald, coming before a king or some official and preparing the way. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. The, now, you remember the map of Israel, right? You've got, uh, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, and you've got two seas. You've got the Sea of Galilee in the north. You've got the, the, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea in the south. And then the Jordan River is this, this thin thread that connects both of them. The wilderness of Judea is in the south. It's probably on the western side, primarily on the western side of the Dead Sea. But it probably also extends a little bit north. It's a deserty sort of um, region. In fact, I think I have a slide there that should be there. Yeah, that gives you a picture of what we're, where we're at when John is preaching. That's a picture of the wilderness of Judea, a really harsh place. If we were to actually also look at uh, uh, the Gospel of John, John uh, 128, it seems that John is probably uh, on the eastern side of the Jordan. So he's on the eastern side of the Jordan, uh, somewhat near where Joshua originally crossed the Jordan to lead um, the people of Israel in conquest of the land. Now that's going to be significant as we go forward. Uh, we don't know 100% for sure, but it seems that way and seems likely given all that is Matthew says in this passage. And what's John's message? We don't really get to know, uh, we'll know more about John here in a second, but what is the core? What is the core, if you were to boil it down, of John the Baptist's message? It's this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we need to digest each of those uh, words in this message. We need to understand it. Let's talk about repentance first. Repentance is one of those words that we throw around in Christian circles, isn't it? We say repent, uh, or I need to repent, or you need to repent, or whatever. But do you understand what repentance means? You see, the idea of repentance, uh, the idea of repentance in the Old Testament was the idea of turning. Uh, you, you are going and heading to in one direction towards sin and away from God, away from God, you're your, your sin mocks God, it dishonors God, it exchanges God for the creation. Repentance means that you forsake your sin, following sin and self, to then look to God and to renounce your sin and to also trust God and to follow God. It is a very broad term. Repentance doesn't refer primarily or exclusively to the acts that you do. It's the language of allegiance change. And we've been using that language a lot in Matthew. The idea of repentance is allegiance change. Some say it's, you know, it's a change of mind. Well, that's true, but it's a change of mind that changes the whole person. You're heading one direction. Your allegiance is in one direction, ultimately to yourself, 
and you're committed to sin, but then you change allegiance and you turn 180 degrees and you are, your allegiance is now to God, which means not only your, uh, you, the actions that you're going to do, but your thoughts, your whole being, the whole of yourself is committed to following God. And not only to following him, but looking to him in faith. Repentance embeds within it the idea of faith, entrusting oneself to the God that you were offending, and now my allegiance is to this God alone who has saved me and whom I will now follow. And as we'll see, and John will highlight later, it does mean because your whole person, because your allegiance has changed, uh, it will result in concrete actions of righteousness, of forsaking sin and concrete actions of righteousness, but it's the fundamental core of repentance is allegiance change. What's interesting too here is that John uses a, a tense in the original that's, uh, it describes something to begin and to keep on doing. So he's not just saying repent in a one-time sense. He's saying begin that allegiance change, enter that allegiance change, but then continue in it. You're to use that, that imagery of that 180-degree turn. Don't just turn once from sin and then to God, and then you go back. That doesn't work. You change, you turn 180 degrees from sin and self to entrusting yourself to God and living in allegiance to God, but you keep that direction. You keep the rudder of your life turned in that direction. It's an ongoing reality. Really, he's calling people to convert. He's calling people to change, and he's calling Jews. He's calling those of, uh, ostensibly of God's people to repent. Why? Why? Well, he gives a reason. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what's this kingdom of heaven business? Really, you could think of it like this. Uh, there's, there's much discussion on it, um, but uh, it's interchangeable with a, a, another term. You see this even in Matthew, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. But the idea is it's the kingdom from heaven. It's the kingdom that has uh, heaven's oversight, certainly, but the kingdom that, that, uh, that, that comes down from heaven in that sense. But really, God has had a plan for a kingdom of heaven since the beginning. And we talked about this in our series of kingdom through covenant, didn't we? God, from the beginning, had his chosen king to rule over creation. That was Adam and Eve. He had them uh, to rule over creation. That was the heaven-anointed kingdom, and God wanted them to extend the borders of that, that kingdom, that stewardship kingdom, to the ends of the earth. But we know the story, we, and we talked about it at length, that that kingdom was interrupted. There was uh, humankind under the influence of Satan uh, sought to usurp God's rule. But then the rest of scripture has that storyline of when is the kingdom coming back? It will come back. When is that going to happen? And so what John is saying here is that kingdom, that kingdom from the Old Testament, the one that's ultimately under the ultimate Davidic king over all, not only over Israel, but also all the world, it has drawn near, has drawn near. It's at hand. Uh, you could say it either way. It has drawn near would be the literal idea. Here's the idea of it's drawn near. He didn't say it arrived. And be very cautious of that. He did not say it arrived. He said it's at hand. It has drawn near. 
You can think about it like this. Suppose you have a friend, he's going to come over and visit you. Uh, and so you know, uh, I'll be over in just a few minutes or whatever. Uh, and he calls you on the phone. And so you're waiting in the house and you're waiting for him to arrive. Uh, and, and maybe that friend gets there, but you don't know it yet. And he's standing on the, 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 the entryway, the, the front porch of the house. And he's standing right in front of the front door. And he hasn't knocked yet, but as soon as he's going to knock, he's going to be let in and he's going to have been arrived. But when he's just standing there right in front of that door, the idea is he's imminent, right? He's imminent. Now, he could, uh, he uh, doesn't mean he's arrived. He's not there yet. He hasn't opened the door. He hasn't joined you, but he's near. He's imminent. It's imminent. This is the language of imminence. And this is what John is speaking of. Repent, repent. Change allegiance from sin to God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is drawn near. And then Matthew goes on to explain what's going on a little bit more. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now you know what we're about to do, don't you? You've been spending enough time, uh, and we spent enough time going through Matthew. What are we going to do? We're going to go back to where that was quoted from, and we're going to investigate the context and understand in context what was Isaiah saying. This is quoted from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And how is Matthew pulling on that chain? How is he pulling on that chain? He's quoting one verse, one link of that chain, but he's pulling on a whole chain for us to understand. So let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah 40. And what you have to remember, we've already been in Isaiah quite a bit in Matthew and had to go back there several times, the prophecy of Emmanuel and what's going on. But you remember the kind of global setup for Isaiah. It's about 100 years before the Babylonian exile happens. But Isaiah is already saying uh, the die is cast. You're going to go into exile, Judah. You're going to go into exile into Babylon, and you're going to become an obscure people, and even the Davidic line, the kingdom line, the kingship line is going to become obscure, but there's going to be an ultimate rescue. And really, in Isaiah 40, we get the turning point of the whole book. Uh, by the end of chapter 39 in Isaiah, it's, it's all over. You're going to Babylon. But Isaiah 40, and then there on out, predicts and looks forward to the future of how Israel and her king are going to be rescued from exile. In terms of what we were talking about last week, this is the second exodus. That's the language that used. And if you read through Isaiah 40 in those, uh, those chapters, you'll hear language that reminds you of the exodus because that is how God's rescue of his people from exile is framed. So we begin in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? 
All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord Yahweh will come with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so the picture is what? The picture is that God is going to come down. And you read further in Isaiah, he's going to come down as a warrior and he is going to rescue his people, and everyone is going to see it. But what's interesting here, if we go back to Matthew, is what is Matthew saying? We know, we know, based on the story so far, he's preparing the way for Christ. He is preparing the way for Christ, and yet in the original context, it's God himself who's going to show up. And again, Matthew is highlighting the picture that, Matt, that, that John is preparing the way for God himself, namely God the Son incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. God is going to show up. And it's not just that God's going to show up, he's going to bring his kingdom. He's going to bring his rule over the whole entire earth. He will re reform all things to make them in alignment to themselves. He will deal with all evildoers. This this is, uh, the backdrop of this is another concept in the Old Testament called the day of the Lord, that, that God will come and he will save his people and at the same time he will judge the wicked. That is the picture. And this is what John is doing. And how do you respond? Repent. Change allegiance. Because this is imminent. This is imminent. Matthew goes on. He, he goes on to describe what is going on here. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I don't know if you've ever read that, and you're like, why did he tell us about his clothes? Like, why does that matter? Well, it matters because uh, for a Jewish audience to hear someone wearing a camel hair cloak and a belt of leather, they would have immediately thought of one person, Elijah. Elijah. Elijah the prophet. In 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah the prophet is described in exactly the same terms that John the Baptist is describing. And if you remember the story of Elijah even a little bit more, where did Elijah go uh, get taken up into heaven? He got taken up into heaven after crossing the Jordan, and then he was he was translated through chariots of fire to heaven. So to hear of someone uh, making a pronouncement in the wilderness about God's kingdom, and he's wearing a camel hair cloak and a leather belt, and he's around the Jordan, you automatically think, hey, it's Elijah. It's Elijah. Now, why is that significant? Well, again, we have to go back to uh, the Old Testament, and we have to take a stop first in Malachi. In Malachi. So turn a few pages to your left. In the English Bible, it's the last book of the Old Testament. 
and we look at Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming. And this is the day of the Lord that I was just mentioning when God shows up and he saves his people and judges the wicked. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And here we go. Verse 6, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the first, what, what would Israel have heard? Elijah's back and the Jordan and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they're thinking the, king, the day of the Lord is near. God's coming and salvation and judgment is near. We've heard about this from Malachi. Now you might ask, well, why did Malachi himself refer to Elijah? Well, what's the original context of Elijah the prophet? Elijah the prophet, who was 100, 150 years, 200 years before Malachi... He's speaking to an apostate Israel, an Israel that's going after Baals, after uh, false gods and false worship. And his ministry, you can read this in First uh, uh, Kings, starting First Kings 17-ish, um, chapter 18 as well, where he has a ministry, he's trying to turn the hearts of Israel back. He's trying to bring an apostate Israel back, lest Israel go into exile, which they did. And he was taken up. And what's interesting, too, is the location of where Elijah was taken up. Uh, he seems to have, it seems like he failed in a way. He passes his ministry on to Elisha right there at the Jordan. He's taken up into heaven. And they're right around the same spot that John was. And so how does this thread work from Kings to Malachi to Matthew? Well, the point is, all three, even Malachi, was speaking to an apostate Israel in his own day. Those who were neglecting the law. They were doing the outward forms. They were doing the outward things right, and yet they didn't really know the Lord. The hearts weren't there. And John the Baptist is doing exactly the same thing. He's speaking to, on the whole, an apostate Israel. They're doing the right things externally, but their hearts aren't there. And yet this imagery, what God has done in sending before his son, this herald, it's an act of mercy to call these people back, to call to repentance, that allegiance, heart change, which changes the whole person. And we see the response, verse, verse 5, and back in Matthew 3. Then Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing 
their sins. Now, we know John's message is repentance, right? Call for repentance. And we see uh, part of the package of repentance is confessing sins, right? So they're confessing specific sins, and then they're going to the waters of baptism. Now, you might ask the question, why, why is baptism? Like, why couldn't they just say, well, I repent, I turn my back on my sins, I'm going to follow and entrust myself to God, and I'm going to live uh, as best as I can a life pleasing to God. Why do they have to get baptized? What's the deal with getting baptized? Why, why is that part of this package deal of repentance? Well, guess what shows us the background of baptism? The Old Testament. <laughs> the Old Testament. And let me walk you through that briefly to understand exactly why John is baptizing in an apostate Israel. Baptism starts in Genesis 1. God creates the heavens and the earth and the earth is covered by water. And then the land comes up out of that water, and then the creatures, and then specifically Adam. Adam, who is called and portrayed as a son of God, in the sense that God created Adam, but also in the sense that that son of God language is particular language that refers to kingship, and priesthood. Adam was to be this priest king coming up out of these waters, a new creation to rule over God's creation, to, to, to form that kingdom program that we talked about earlier. Then what happens is the flood, and guess what? Everything is back to being covered with water all over again. Why? Because those are the waters of judgment, the waters of judgment, where the wicked come into these waters and they're judged, and yet there's salvation even in these waters of judgment for Noah and his family. And then the waters recede, and then what comes up? Mountains and earth, and then creatures, and, and then a man, Noah, who inherits the exact same commission with some added details that Adam had. He, he comes out as a priest and a king to rule over God's creation. Fast forward to the Exodus. Israel, God calls Israel out of, uh, 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 out of bondage in Egypt, and he calls them, this is my son. My son. That son language is a language that refers to a stewardship rule and kingship. And you remember, as they're fleeing from the Egyptians, what happens? They pass through the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. And the Egyptians fall by the waters of judgment, and yet Israel and God's son is brought out of those waters as a priestly and kingly nation. And then we could even think of stuff like the, uh, the, high, um, the, the high priests being ordained to ministry. That, um, that basin, that laver in the, the temple court was to symbolize the sea. And the priest was to have a full body washing to symbolize new creation, to exercise a priestly role. And then we fast forward to the, the conquest of the land under Joshua. And what do they do? Right at the same spot that John the Baptist is at, we think anyway, what do they do? They cross the waters the, the, this is the second generation of Exodus. The first generation had fell in judgment in the desert, but the second generation, this repentant generation on the whole, is following Joshua. They pass through the waters to begin the conquest of the land, to function as the nation of the kingdom of priests 
as God's son and ruler. So now we can begin to understand a little bit of why John is baptizing. He starts on the eastern side of the Jordan, and he calls Israel to repentance, and they come. And they are repentant, and then they cross. They, they are drowned, so to speak, in the waters of new creation, and they arise as part of this nation, not only individuals, but a collection of individuals as a nation to be the Israel that God has called them to be, to be his son. Remember, that sonship language means a stewardship rule and dominion as priest and king. So they are preparing their hearts, and they're saying, we, are your, we, we need you to change our hearts, and we want to be your priestly nation and people. This is what's going on. This is why baptism is part of John's message of repentance. And the call in all of this, again, what's the call? Repent because the kingdom has drawn near. And friends, that's the same for us, isn't it? Jesus came, and the reason the kingdom was near is because the king was near. God in flesh stepped onto this planet. He arrived. He arrived. He has come near. And the implications of that through the centuries flow down even to today. As you are here in this church, the local manifestation of God's temple on earth, you have come near to God's kingdom. It is not fully there yet. We wait for the future. And here's the amazing thing. God didn't come and destroy everyone, although he would have been in his rights to do that. God came to bring salvation to those who repent, who entrust themselves to him. And he is given a reprieve of judgment. But make no mistake, he will come again. He will come to save those who are eagerly waiting for him and to judge those who are evil doers who have not repented of their sin. And so the question to us is, are you repentant? Not just have I said some things, not that I've made a profession. Has my allegiance changed from sin and self to God to entrusting myself to God. God, you cannot save yourself from God's wrath by running from him. You can only save yourself from God's wrath by running to him alone. And that's not a one-time thing. That's a lifetime. It's not a one-time switch between, uh, change between sin and God. It is a lifetime of heading and pressing into God and to who he is, enjoying him, uh, trusting him, forsaking more and more sin, and by his grace, trusting in his salvation and his work alone. You see, the only way you can escape from God's wrath is through repentance. Repentance, renouncing your life in sin and following God alone. Is that characterize your life? Are you repentant? Is your allegiance to God or is your allegiance to self? Where is your allegiance? And if you have not and you are not or you've drifted, the call is still the same. Whether you've drifted or you've never done it, repent because the kingdom has drawn near. It is imminent. 
it is imminent. But secondly, what we see in this text, starting in verse 7, is this, another call, another call, and the call is this, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Bear fruit worthy of repentance, starting in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, now let's pause there for just a second. Pharisees uh, are uh, kind of sort of uh, common heroes. Uh, they're, 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 they're of the common people. They're of the common people. They have, uh, they're, they're around the synagogues. They're among the people. There's, uh, by one extra biblical author around this time, he records there's about 6,000 of them in the, the, the land of Israel at this time. And what they were about, they were about keeping the law, but not only about keeping the written law, they decided, well, let's build some fences. Let's build, to keep ourselves from disobeying the written law, let's build ourselves some fences around that written law that we will also keep so that we make sure we don't violate the law, right? So they are very fastidious about, uh, uh, about the sin and also about keeping God's law. And they also... Uh, hold to the whole canon of scripture. They believe in the, revel- uh, the, the resurrection. They believe in angels, etc. Then you got the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the aristocrats, and they were connected with the temple. They were connected with the temple. So these were kind of the official religious people, in a sense. Uh, the Pharisees were kind of a grassroots movement. And, but the Sadducees, it seems like they only held to the first five books of uh, the Hebrew Bible, the books of Moses, and they rejected everything else, and they rejected the, re- um, the resurrection. So these guys don't get along, okay? Uh, they're enemies, generally. They're like the Republicans and the Democrats. They don't get along, okay? But they're both showing up here, and they're both showing up. Why are they both showing up? Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees held seats on the Sanhedrin, this council, this ruling council for Israel, and it seems like, and we know from John's response to them, it doesn't seem like they're coming actually for, for the baptism. They're coming to the baptism to see what's going on. We've got a lot of people flooding in from Jerusalem, Judea, all the Jordan coming out, and the Sanhedrin says, okay, we need a delegation, go investigate, go investigate. And so they're coming to his baptism, and then immediately John says what? You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Now, that is significant because what he's calling them is baby snakes, and baby snakes come from the daddy snake, Satan, right? He is saying, you are, uh, he's connecting them with Satan. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's being sarcastic. Did you know that sarcasm is in the Bible? There you go. Um, who, 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 are you to, uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What, why are you coming? You need to flee from God's wrath. You guys aren't, but you need to. Who warned you? Who warned you to come out here? And then he calls them to this, and this is the key language. You'll see it again. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So even if they were repentant, uh, even if they really were coming to the baptism for repentance... They're not. He knows they're not. But even if they were, what, he, what would you do? You would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, this idea of bearing fruit, what is it? Uh, remember, we talked about repentance as the allegiance change. It's the allegiance change from sin and self to entrusting yourself to God and to following him, which means there must be implications for your life. 
If you were to boil it down to the, the two uh, greatest commandments, loving God and loving neighbor, that's what bearing fruit is. Are you loving God with the whole of your being, and are you loving your neighbor? And as we see the picture, and we'll see it portrayed later in Matthew, these guys weren't. They're hypocrites. They were satisfied with what they knew and their religiosity. They knew a lot. They knew the scriptures. And they set themselves up as being safe and sound, and yet they didn't bear fruit. They, uh, Jesus later criticizes them for not having compassion, for not doing justice, for, uh, and he pronounces woes on them for devouring widows' houses. So there was an external form of religiosity, but not truly loving God and loving neighbor. And so John is saying, if you, if you, you're, you guys aren't coming for repentance, but even if you were, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he goes on. Do not presume to say to yourself, see, and the language here is, don't even start thinking. He knows where they're going to go. He's like, don't even start thinking this way. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. The idea being that God chose the nation of Israel and he chose Abraham. And since they have a heritage, a spiritual heritage rooted in Abraham, they're good. They're good. That's all that's required. God chose the nation of Israel. We're part of that nation. We're good. That's their mindset. And he said, don't even say that. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, what's he talking about? Well, at a basic level, we can for sure say this, right? He's saying, uh, you, you think that you're, you're, uh, because of what God has promised, that he's promised to give you salvation just by being your spiritual heritage being that of Abraham. But God could do what he wants to do by raising up and creating from these stones children for Abraham. So he, he's saying you can't put any trust in your spiritual heritage in that way. More specifically, if this is the location where Joshua crossed the Jordan, then they formed two piles of stones, 12 stones in the Jordan, 12 stones out as memorials for the nation of Israel crossing. And he's like pointing to that stack of stones that everyone knows about. It's like, those represent the nation of Israel. God from those stones could raise up people for Abraham. But regardless, the point is this. You cannot trust in your spiritual heritage to save you. You cannot trust in your spiritual heritage to save you. Even now, even now, verse 10, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. And the picture is this forest. There's this forest, and this is an Old Testament metaphor. There's this forest in front. There's all these trees, and the axe is right at the root of the tree. It's like the axeman is standing there with his axe blade on the root, ready to take a pullback and swing and start chopping down this forest. And he's talking chopping down individual trees. Another way you could think about this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to hide in this corporate reality of Israel. They're trying to hide from God's wrath and say they're okay, but he's saying that you're an individual tree, and there is a divine axeman holding his axe at the root of this tree, corresponding with the nearness, the imminency of God's arrival, and the imminency of the kingdom, and you will not escape. Even now, the, tree is laid to, uh, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, there's the good fruit language again, is cut down and thrown into the fire, the fires of judgment. What is the criteria by which God will cut down individuals and throw them into the fires of judgment? Are you bearing good fruit, fruit that corresponds to 
repentance. You see, remember what we talked about, repentance. It's a whole allegiance change. It starts in the internal from uh, focusing on, from following sin and self to trusting and following God. But it's a whole person change, which means there must be implications. There must be outworking fruit if there's a true allegiance change. And if there is no fruit, if there is no good fruit, there's bad fruit, but there's no good fruit, then that is justification to cut down that tree because they're not alive, they're not genuine, and they're thrown into the fires of God's judgment. He goes on, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance. Remember we said that the coming to the waters for repentance, we need God's recreation. We need God's recreation so we can come out clean and washed and to be his true sons and daughters. I baptize you water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. The idea of unstrapping sandals, it was too low for even the the lowest Hebrew slave. Only a a Gentile slave could unstrap a master's sandals. He's saying, I can't even do that. The one who's coming after me is so great. And he contrasts the baptism. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We already know that fire represents uh, the manifestation of God's judgment. But when he says baptizing by the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit... That would have reminded the hearers that of the promises in the Old Testament that for Israel to repent, for Israel to be a people who walk in the laws of the Lord, they needed the Holy Spirit. And there was the promise in the new covenant that the Holy Spirit would indwell each individual and the nation as a whole so that they could walk in the ways honoring and pleasing to the Lord. So you see a, a juxtaposition here. This one's going to come, and he's going to come and give salvation in the form of giving the indwelling Holy Spirit to those who are his, but those who are not his, this coming one is going to baptize in fire, in the fires of judgment. And it goes on with this imagery, verse 13. His winnowing fork, or verse 12, sorry. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable Fire. And the imagery is this. When you gather in that time, you take your, your wheat and you put it in the threshing floor. You have the shovel thing and you throw the, the, the grain and the, the, the chaff up in the air and the wind comes and blows the chaff away and then you have a stockpile of good grain. And so then the idea is you shovel off, you clear the threshing floor of the grain, you put it in your storehouse and then the chaff, the only thing it's fit for is for fuel and so you throw it into unquenchable fire. These are the fires of judgment. This is what the coming of God will mean. This is what the coming of God will mean. And so as we think about application, even for us, right, if God is going to come, God has come, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, and you need repentance, but you need a repentance that bears fruit, Your spiritual heritage, your spiritual knowledge, your spiritual profession will not save you. What's, what do we look at? What does God look at? Fruit. 
If you've truly changed in allegiance from sin and self to God, then it must change your life. And your life has not been changed, then you must not know God. That is the truth. The, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they knew it all. They knew they had better knowledge than most of who they were talking about. They had cleaner lives than a lot of the people they were talking to. It did not save them because it wasn't a true heart change that produced fruit. What we're not talking about here, imagine, imagine using some of the imagery from Matthew here, you could imagine a dead tree, right? A dead tree is not going to produce any fruit, or maybe it's poisoned. It's going to produce bad fruit. The way to solve that problem is not just by tacking some good fruit. I go down to Rosar's and pay five bucks an apple and staple them onto this tree, right? And it's like, oh, look, that tree has good fruit on it. Uh, really, really expensive fruit on it, right? Uh, but, but that didn't solve the problem, did it? That's not what we're talking about. It's not talking about, well, do better. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here, the whole tree is diseased. It needs to be renewed. It needs to be cleansed. It needs to be a new creation. And if you have a, tr- a clean, a healthy tree, then it produces good fruit. Produces good fruit. So is there fruit and you say, well, no, I, I, you know, I, I don't have, um, uh, you know, I know I, I fail here and here and here, so I'm going to work at pasting that fruit up. No, no, no. The key is start with the heart. The heart flows into actions. The heart flows into actions. And even more so, if you know Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit who will cause you to walk in his ways, and there will be fruit. There will be. It must be. How do you know? Well, let's go to another fruit and tree passage, Galatians 5.19. And ask yourself this question as you come to it. Am I bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? There's a contrast here. We have bad fruit and we have good fruit. Galatians 5.19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's our kingdom imminency again. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Do you love God? And do you love his people? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Joy is your greatest delight in life, God himself. Peace, even though external circumstances might be rough or tough or bad, is your peace in God himself. Patience, are you patient with people? Or do you have a hair trigger? Kindness, are you good to those around you and especially to God's people? Goodness, do you do good? Do you, do you love God's goodness and you want to emulate that in your life? Faithfulness, are you loyal to God and to his people? Gentleness, are you gentle with people? Self-control, against such things there is no law. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
John is preparing the way for Jesus, God the Son incarnate. He has come, and what is the proper response? Repent and entrust yourself to the imminent king in order to bear fruit and escape his wrath. Let's pray. Close. Jesus, you are the true vine, and you give true spiritual vitality. Lord, we know apart from you, we can do nothing. And Lord, we pray, we ask your forgiveness for the ways in which we've drifted even this last week and looked more at self and had our allegiance on self rather than on you. Lord, we ask that we would be repentant people. And Lord, even as you expose sin in our lives, we pray that we would not tolerate it that we would hate it. Lord, we pray, we pray that you would grow us in fruit. Lord, if we claim to know you and to have our allegiance to you, and that is what we want, Lord, we ask for fruit. Produce those things that we just read about in Galatians. Holy Spirit, manifest that in our lives. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today that are hiding that are trying to hide within the bounds of the local church, or they're trying to hide based on their connection with a, a parents or people that, that believe the truth, or maybe they're trying to hide in their religious knowledge, Lord, that you would expose them, that you would expose them for the purpose of coming to you in true and genuine repentance. And Lord, we thank you that you wash us, you cleanse us, you make us new creatures, you make us part of your priesthood, spiritually, and then portrayed through the waters of baptism. We thank you for that. Help us to be a people that honor you and who long for your coming, knowing that we are clean because of what you have done in washing us and making us your people. Lord, we ask these things, we pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.